I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Principle of Charity Season 3. My name is Jonah Primo. I'm the producer along with Bronwyn Reed. And things are getting really exciting. For one, this season we've got a bigger team. So with our new Principle of Charity engine, we will be bringing you weekly episodes as opposed to fortnightly. We're also mixing in a few new special episodes in and around our normal conversations with two experts. So that'll add a little spice. And I have to say, our guests are really the best of the best. So you can look forward to some big names and intellectual heavy hitters. Now this season, we're pushing you as an audience to apply the principle of charity in your everyday lives. So listen out for Lloyd's weekly principle of charity challenge. Other than that, you can find us on all social media and get involved in the discussion as well. Our Twitter in particular can get a little heated, so be sure to jump on there with your hot take or just a calming, charitable voice of reason. That's at P of Charity. And now to Lloyd and Emil with Jonathan Rauch. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight, to first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Principle of Charity encourages us to listen before we lecture. And our Principle of Charity challenge this week is... When in a major disagreement or in a conflict, can you highlight a few of the things that you have learned from those with whom you are in conflict with? Today's episode is slightly different. This is a spotlight episode where we focus in on the principle of charity itself. It kicks off season three. And in these spotlight episodes, we bring on one guest whose work and interests sit within the broader frame of the principle of charity. Emil, our guest today is Jonathan Rauch, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington. Jonathan is the author of eight books and numerous articles on public policy, culture, and government. He's a contributing writer for The Atlantic and recipient of the 2005 National Magazine Award. This is the magazine industry's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. His latest book, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of the Truth, is an account of how to push back against disinformation, cancelling, and other new threats to our fact-based epistemic order. Jonathan's new book will be a major topic of our conversation today. But before we get on to that, let me tell you about two or three other books of Jonathan's. In 2018, he published The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50, a lauded account of the surprising relationship between ageing and happiness. And his two other noteworthy books include Denial, My 25 Years Without a Soul, a memoir of his struggle with his sexuality, as well as Gay Marriage, Why It Is Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America. 
Thanks, Lloyd. I'm so excited to have Jonathan on. His book, The Constitution of Knowledge, was a huge eye-opening moment for me. Like many, I've been battling with the question of what truth means in today's world. Knowledge itself has been under sustained attack for a while now, right at its very foundations. Some of these attacks are based on legitimate concerns and some less so. Now, there are things like fake news and trolling, which come more often from the right, trying to flood reputable sources of knowledge with a fire hose of falsehoods. And then there's the challenges to free speech from the left, which reduce speech and truth claims to acts of power and therefore see cancelling as a form of social justice. Added into the mix, of course, is a distrust of experts who are seen as elites who use truth in inverted commas to perpetuate their privilege. And there's also a general flattening of expertise itself, which has unearthed lots of great new voices from outside the establishment, but has also meant that those with the most inflammatory ideas seem to get more purchase than those who spent decades building deep expertise. And of course, there's social media, which has been fueling all of this, making the breakdown in knowledge profitable. So I've been battling with the question of what knowledge and truth even mean in this environment with so little consensus, so much distrust and so much polarization. What Jonathan's book does is to help reframe the question entirely. His concept of the constitution of knowledge tells us that knowledge isn't about what I think versus what you think or about how to identify truth in a world of fake news. It's the idea that knowledge is produced socially through the way a society is organized and that different systems produce better or worse knowledge. The great success that liberal democracies have had in advancing knowledge for a few hundred years has come from the way our institutions and cultural norms have sucked in a huge multiplicity of ideas, some good and some bad, and assessed them, discussed them, dissected them, argued about them, and turn them slowly, albeit with many hiccups and missteps, into better and better forms of knowledge. Just think about the advances in science, uh, engineering, medicine, as well as the social sciences, uh, psychology, social policy, economics, etc. Now, how have we done this? It hasn't been through an autocrat or a god who tells us what's true, but equally and crucially, it's not a free-for-all either, where the loudest and most violent claim to truth wins. There is, according to Jonathan, a constitution of knowledge defined as the social rules for turning disagreement into knowledge. It's made up of the laws and norms and cultural codes embedded in our institutions from academia to the scientific community to journalism to the law and government, which work together to slowly but surely produce better knowledge. And unless we understand the system and truly know and value how it works, we will not be able to improve it, or importantly to this moment in history, to adequately defend it from attacks. So Let's bring on Jonathan and explore the constitution of knowledge. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And as I said in in my introduction, your book was just a huge eye-opener for me. Your key insight, as I understand it, is that we shouldn't worry too much about what any individual thinks to be true. We all carry so many biases and our, our reasoning is so motivated by our, poli- our beliefs that, that our views as individuals are not reliably good. But it's as a community of citizens, as a society, that knowledge is created. And, and there are better and worse ways for knowledge to be produced by a society. The constitution of knowledge is what you've called the, the system of knowledge production in liberal democracies. So can you tell us what is the constitution of knowledge. Why do you think it works so well, or at least better than the other systems that that uh, we've experienced? Well, first, Emil, uh, thank you for having me. It's it's a pleasure to to be with you. Every 
society, large or small, you know, tribal or national, needs some way to settle differences of viewpoint about facts, about what's true. Now, of course, a lot of things we don't need to settle. If some people think Elvis Presley is alive and living in Indiana in the U.S., then, you know, okay, some people believe weird things, but but we need some account of facts for public purposes. Do we send Elvis Presley, you know, a public pension check, for example? Do we file a missing persons report on Elvis Presley? And so forth. And when it comes to that, it is a very difficult problem for any society to come to some kind of conclusion, workable conclusion about what's factual and what's not. And in fact, over time, the main ways societies have dealt with this is they form tribes of beliefs in which no one is allowed to disagree. And if they do disagree, they're banished or imprisoned or just killed. Hmm. Or they go to war over schisms or most often they develop authoritarian regimes like princes or politburos or priests who declare what's true. Hmm. The constitution of knowledge is a very different way of doing it. It arose about 300 years ago in about the same time frame as the US constitution and liberal democracy generally, and it has the same basic idea. Just as the only way to make a law in the United States is to work through a public process in which you have to persuade others, you have to compromise with others, power is distributed. So the only way to make knowledge in the constitution of knowledge is to persuade others, to show them your arguments and your evidence, and only to the degree that lots of other people can independently assess your ideas do you get to make knowledge. And it all sounds very cumbersome. It turns out to be a species transforming technology that produces more new knowledge in a given morning than humanity did in the first 200,000 years. And what are some of the defining norms and rules of the constitution knowledge that make it so productive? The two core ones, I think, are two rules that basically go back to the beginnings of the scientific revolution and the philosophy of, of John Locke. The first is the fallibilist rule, and the second mm. is the empirical rule. The fallibilist rule says anyone could be wrong, so no one can ever completely end a debate. And that has knowledge ramifications because it means we're never 100% sure. There's always a possibility you could be wrong, which means it's mm. always allowed to criticize, to question, to doubt. And that has social consequences, meaning no one is allowed to declare that they have ended the debate and that anyone who questions them goes to jail, which is the usual mm. move that popes and dictators made through history. So that puts you in a world where you have a lot of freedom to inquire and to doubt. Second rule is the empirical rule. And that says the only way to establish knowledge is to check with other people and to do it in a way where persons are interchangeable. So if I can make an argument or run an experiment. You need to be able to replicate the experiment or follow the logic. Doesn't matter what language you speak or where you are. Viewpoints have to be interchangeable. So anyone can enter this debate. From a scientific point of view, that means you've set up a global search for knowledge where everyone's on the same page critiquing each other. Um, hmm. And who you are doesn't matter, or at least shouldn't matter. From a social point of view, it's equally important because it basically sets up a system of equality. It says mm. no one gets special privileges. You have to be able to persuade the highest of the high and the lowest of the low. That's the only way to do it. 
any society that has those two rules, you need other rules, like, you know, people have to be willing to lose an argument, just as people have to be willing to lose an election, that kind of thing. Power has to be distributed. There have to be lots of institutions. But wherever you have those two rules, you'll have something that looks a lot like modern journalism, modern science, modern law, um, and the other pillars of the constitution of knowledge. When you talk about a constitution, people might jump to the conclusion that these are actually laws, but it's not just laws. It becomes, uh, it sits within our cultural norms, and that's why it can be quite shocking when they're breached so flagrantly. How, how do these laws and norms stay in effect? How do they have um, strength and um, if they're not all written and prosecutable? Like, what does it mean to say it's a constitution? Well, constitution, of course, in the United States, it's it's written on paper. It has a Supreme Court. But in the UK, it's not written on paper. And hmm. the American founders made very clear, they all said again and again, the words on paper won't matter if people don't absorb them as, as kind of rules of conduct in their heart, civic virtues. And that's the level where the constitution of knowledge is written. It's written in all those years when we go to school and we learn respect mm. for facts. Uh, you may have produced documentaries. I'm not sure. Mm. Now, something you could do in a documentary, people have, Dinesh D'Souza, for example, Tucker Carlson, is just make stuff up. Mm. But I'm guessing that you would not do that because you spent years training in the rules of the constitution of knowledge. And one of those is you can't lie. Hmm. Uh, you've got to make a good faith effort to tell the truth. Well, where does that come from? You're not going to jail if you don't tell the truth, but you will be marginalized by the reality-based community if people start checking your work and find out that you're making stuff up and that you're really just an entertainer. Now, that doesn't have to be written down, but through years of teaching and inculcation and college and graduate school and professional training and credentialing and learning to write papers and do citations and figuring out how to do journalism and what a documentary involves, all of those things deeply write in our hearts the rules of the constitution of knowledge. And, and, and that's really where it resides. Yeah. And that's what seems to have come under attack so much recently, even in institutions like journalism, there's a sense that, well... There are different opinions. Journalism is essentially just opinion, and we can throw out uh, some of these rules and norms. But you're saying that's not right. These rules and norms actually are valuable, even though they don't point to one truth. They point to a system of truth production and knowledge production. Exactly right. In fact, the key to them, one of the reasons the constitution of knowledge is challenging, you know, it's not an easy thing to observe, is that humans have a hunger for, for ground truth, you know, for absolute truth unquestionable truth. And, and you never get yeah. that in the constitution of knowledge. What you get instead is a global com, uh, a global process of, of error checking. It's millions of people around the world, thousands of institutions, all searching for each other's errors. That's emotionally kind of unsatisfying because it means, you know, you can't ever be completely sure you're right. But as a social production system for knowledge, it beats everything else hollow. It is, it is tricky and it, it is unsatisfying, as you say, because people do want to know that what they read is absolutely true, but you're asking people to accept that they need to believe that the system produces truth or is most likely to produce truth rather than feeling confident that any one individual piece of journalism is absolutely true. And if it's not, therefore, I can throw out a belief in journalism in general. Exactly right. Yes. It's it's counterintuitive to say the least. You know, the phrase constitution of knowledge, Emil, it's it's not a metaphor, a simile, a figure of speech. Um, 
the constitution of knowledge is a real thing. It's actual institutions and norms. And in many ways, they operate on similar principles to the US constitution. And one of the similarities is in politics, in a liberal democracy, you don't have monarchs. You don't have final resting places, people who are imbued with absolute power that's unquestionable, which cannot be taken away. And you have constant elections, constant change. One mm. party is down, then a party is back up. Um, this is disorienting, right? This kind of liberal democracy does not come naturally to us. We have to trust this abstract system of voting. Millions of people, each playing a small role to make the choices for us of, of who leads us. That's a, a very mm. new and, and very counterintuitive idea. Well, the same is true in the world of knowledge. Instead of my going to church or synagogue, being told the truth and then saying, that's it, no more questions, I have to be willing to be part of this global system of knowledge production where all I offer is one small bit of my own perspective, my own bit of evidence. And I have to be prepared to lose the argument. Now, I can try again. I can correct my argument. People do. That's the glory of the system. You can make mistakes. You don't get hung or shot. Um, but it's not something that comes natural to, to, to humans. The constitution of knowledge is a learned environment, not a natural environment. And you drew this uh, link between the constitution of knowledge, the system of epistemology that produces knowledge with the political system, but also with the economic system. Can you just spell out how you know the, the capitalist system produces price from hundreds, thousands, millions of different um, individual interests and desires? Yeah, the big picture here, Emil, uh, if you pull the camera, so to speak, all the way back, what we're talking about is the liberal revolution that begins around the time of the Enlightenment or 100, 200 years after. And the liberal revolution says the ways we've been doing things have been oppressive and they've created war and ignorance and poverty. Let's try a very different idea. Let's substitute rules for rulers. And they do that in three different spheres. And we've talked about two of them. Uh, one is, I think the greatest of all is the realm of knowledge, where you turn it over to this gigantic community of people looking for each other's mistakes. I call them the reality-based community. The second mm. is liberal politics. And the third, of course, is liberal economics, mm. where you set up markets in which individuals and groups, companies trade with each other. And there again, it's very counterintuitive. You have to trust these abstract markets to process huge amounts of information and come up with sensible prices and kind of run itself. Um, so all three of these systems are the foundation of modern liberal order, and they all resemble each other in that they're distributed rule-based decision-making. They shouldn't work. You know, it's like a bicycle. They shouldn't work. Intuitively, they all seem awfully strange, but in practice, they are astonishing. And they all turn disagreement, whether knowledge-based, political, or, or market-based, into something that's you know more productive than the, than the sum of the disagreeable parts. Yes, exactly. That's such an important point. You could say disagreement. You could also say diversity. Yeah. They all take this fundamental problem of human life, which is that we are very different from each other. We have different preferences. So how do we handle that? Well, we could suppress that and say mm. there's one right preference, or you can exploit that and say, no, we'll trade. And out of that, we'll build a whole economy. We have different political mm. ideologies. So what do we do about that? Well, again, you could suppress one or you could have James Madison's great innovation say, wait a minute, 
let's make that the raw material for a dynamic political system. Let's have lots of factions. Let's force them to compromise through a constitutional Mm. process. It's amazing. And it works. And of course, the third area is, I think, the most important diversity of viewpoint. You can't have science without diversity of viewpoint because you'll just echo each other's prejudices. You won't challenge your assumptions. So what science does, constitutional knowledge does, is say, well, this is a plus, not a minus. Let's pit all these ideas, these viewpoints against each other. Let's force them to inform and persuade each other. And then we'll get the benefit of all these tremendous diverse viewpoints and we'll be able to merge them into something larger than any individual. Just looking at the individual for a second, could you just outline why individual thinking is so flawed inherently? I mean, there are a lot of people who do think they have weighed the pros and the cons. They really looked at the evidence. They have come up with rational Um, disinterested uh, conclusions. Why should we doubt the individual in a sort of fundamental sense? Well, philosophers since the ancients have understood the many ways in which human cognition is flawed, the many mistakes that we make goes back to Plato, goes back before Plato. But in the Mm. last 50 or so years, modern cognitive psychology and experimental practice has surfaced literally dozens of cognitive biases and defects that mislead us. It turns out we are we are well designed for a simple, not fast-changing life among tribes in the savannah. We are good at working out problems like where is the next tribe camped and are they friendly? Where can I find water? But when it comes to abstract issues where we don't get immediate personal feedback in the form of, Mm. we go thirsty, it gets much more difficult. Like for instance, what is causing the plague that is afflicting our children? Well, one group says, it's that witch over there, burn her. And another group says, no, it's your false religion, burn you. Mm. Um, And it turns out that we we have all kinds of biases, everything from confirmation bias an in-group bias to repetition bias, just hearing something more often makes you think it's more likely to be true. Hearing statements that are made by people with accents makes you think they're less likely to be true. On and on and on, dozens of these things. Uh, They don't cancel each other out. They often reinforce Mm. each other. And the result of that is if you rely simply on the world of our perceptions, we make lots and lots of mistakes. And unfortunately, being smart doesn't help. In fact, it just makes you better at rationalizing your errors. Yeah, that's a key insight, isn't it? Yeah. This has nothing to do with intelligence. Yeah. Lots of experiments now show that what super smart people do with all that horsepower is just work even harder at rationalizing their false beliefs, imposing their preferences on reality. And then it also doesn't help to be certain. Certainty is zero guide to truthfulness. So what does help? How do we get out of this box? The answer is, I can't see my biases and you can't see yours, but you can see mine and I can see yours. Forcing us into this kind of exchange with each other on equal terms so that you have to look at my evidence and I have to look at yours and we both have to live with the consequences of that, that harnesses those cognitive biases. It's it's an extraordinary idea when you think about it, what's going on in the constitution of knowledge and in, in science and journalism in these other fields. Yeah, the, yeah, I mean, this is obviously the impetus behind this podcast, which is at least with two people, 
with differing views, you can put a view into relief by seeing it in contrast to something else. Because when you have two people talking, and I'm conscious this is one of our spotlight episodes where it's just you as the guest, we'll even be subject to the biases that uh, we hold together. And it's very difficult to see them unless you have people with different viewpoints. And one of the things I was thinking about when you're talking about, you know, the limitations of individual knowledge is that there are certain areas like social sciences, which are just harder to falsify, aren't they? So views you have about why the plague continues to uh, afflict your your community can be harder to falsify than is your house going to stand up or not, than engineering beliefs. And yeah, how do you think about the fallibility rule when it comes to different domains, when it comes to social sciences, the hard sciences? And I was even thinking, because I'm in the arts, about the arts and and how institutions might produce knowledge about what's a good movie or not a good movie. Well, we could get in the weeds on this because it's an interesting philosophical question. Three words that terrify most people, interesting philosophical question. But there's a dispute about this. It goes way back. And one side says that only hard science, you know, what's clearly refutable, what you can bring empirical evidence to bear, physics, chemistry, that sort of thing is really science. And the rest is a mishmash posing as science. And then there's the opposite view, which, which I take, which says that's completely wrong. The methods of the constitution of knowledge can be used for any type of debate, including aesthetic debates, including moral debates. Yes, they may be harder to settle because it's harder to find that crisp experiment. Yet over time, even in aesthetic and moral debates, we can adduce evidence and argument that prove persuasive um, and find moral truths. And we've done that throughout history. If you look at a non-liberal society, you know, I don't know, Soviet communism, you'll see no particular moral progress. You'll have more mm. times, you'll have sometimes that are more oppressive, sometimes that are less oppressive, cycles, whatever. If you look at a liberal society where the constitution of knowledge prevails, you can always tell which way the tape is running because it's always running toward more inclusivity. Uh, more minority rights. I'm gay. I've mm. lived through this. I've seen it. And, and how did we do that? How did we make these moral arguments uh, for the equality of, of homosexual people? Well, we showed them evidence that we were not criminals, that we were not insane, mm. that we were not trying to undermine society. We made arguments about fairness and equality. And over time, in the exact same process that physicists use, although without experimental science, we were able to do the same process of persuasion. Same is true in the arts. An example I, I use in the book. Question, is Hamlet a longer play than, I don't know, Pericles to pick two Shakespearean plays? Well, that's easy to settle. You count the words. Hmm. Is Hamlet a greater play than Pericles? Well, you may say that's more subjective, but it has been just as thoroughly settled because 200 years, 300 years of scholarship using many kind of arguments and evidence from how often it's performed to how innovative is it, uh, I think have resolved clearly the question that Hamlet's a better play. So I'm sorry to answer it in such a long, such a roundabout way. But yeah, the, the method of constitution of knowledge can't resolve every controversy, but it can organize every controversy in a way that points it toward mm. resolution. And there might be different sorts of knowledge. The knowledge of what holds up a building might be different to the knowledge of what is a better play. But there are still better forms of ways of organizing the knowledge than other forms of ways of organizing the knowledge. Yes. And it, it, it makes all the difference. Yeah. And you can't necessarily expect 
the same sense of a conclusion in one form than another, but that doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, and the biggest difference, Emil, is they, you know one of the things that, that deconstructionists and, and leftists and others say is, well, all knowledge-making systems are just politics really all the way down. They empower some people, they disempower other people. So uh, let's go with one that empowers the right people, namely us. And I agree with that to a limited extent. All knowledge-producing systems, social systems, are political systems in the sense that they do impose rules on people and they do allocate goods like, you know, who's right and who's wrong, who has power, who doesn't have power. But one way to do this is unlike all the others because it generates freedom, knowledge, and peace, of which peace is the most important. The other systems, the authoritarian systems, reliably produce either repression or warfare because at the end of the day, they cannot bring people to a non-coercive social consensus. Hmm. Constitutional hmm. knowledge has the great advantage over the other two that not only does it produce knowledge at a fantastic rate by sifting through millions of hypotheses a day and finding the few that act, add to knowledge, and not only does it produce freedom because it doesn't allow any particular person to control the debate, but it creates a stable and peaceful society that turns diversity toward peace instead of war. Can we just spell out what the institutions that make up the constitution of knowledge are? You've talked about journalism and science, but how, how broad are these institutions and, and what are they? Well, there's a thing I call the reality-based community, um, with apologies to the originator of that phrase, Karl Rove, a Bush administration official. And the reality-based community is the people and institutions that in their professional lives adhere to the constitution of knowledge. Hmm. Uh, and there are lots of those, and they include all kinds of things, including you know accountancies and museums and libraries. One and probably the most important is the world of academia and science and research. And that's self-evident. If that's not based hmm. in truth, the whole, the whole game is off. The second is journalism. You have to have mm. a press which is dedicated to real facts, not fake facts. It has to be mm. willing to check to make sure that what it publishes is true, correct mistakes if they're wrong. The third is law. Uh, the idea of a fact turns out to have originated not in science, but in law, predating science mm. by hundreds of years, because courts needed facts in order to make decisions that were rational. And when you think about it, law is an adversarial process in which people have to persuade a judge. And it must be fact-based. And if it's not, you lose your country. We've seen what happens with challenges to fact-based law in the United States and the challenges to the 2020 election. And then the fourth area is government. Government must be grounded in facts, in truth. If it can invent its own reality, you're in the world of 1984, or for that matter, the world of President Trump who altered the course of a hurricane with a Sharpie pen. Now, that can mm. kill hundreds or thousands of people. Mm. Government is capricious and tyrannical if it doesn't stay fact-based. And governments, for example, the US government, is shot through with agencies that are charged with being careful about facts, everything from law enforcement to intelligence to inspectors general to the budget offices. That's, that's a stanchion of freedom and democracy. So those are the four elements of the Constitution of Knowledge that, that are the musts. I want to turn our attention to the empirical rule and where it leaves this idea of lived experience that 
not every bit of knowledge might be able to be interchangeable between people. Is there knowledge of giving birth that's only available to women? Is there knowledge of racism that's only available to people who've been subjected to it? So if you're a group of men deciding on how best to deal with women's health, you might be fact-based and looking at those best research. But if you haven't lived the experience of women, there's something that's been missing out. And so that I see it as being a bit of a challenge to the empirical rule, which says there's a personal authority doesn't come into it. One's personal experience is not valid if it can't be shared with everyone and be subject to the push and shove of, um, of a you know, reality-based community. How, how would the constitution of knowledge see that tension? So there's two versions of what's called sometimes standpoint epistemology or perspectivism, subjectivism. And one I completely agree with. And I can say that as, as a gay American, you know, one of the slogans of the gay rights movement is we are the experts on our lives. For years, right. in the 1950s and 60s, until 1972 in the United States, homosexuality was, was considered by the psychiatric experiment a mental disorder. This was a source of, of great oppression and misery to gay people. And it was not based on good evidence. Um, mm. And gay people got sick of that and went to psychiatry mm. and not only presented them with better evidence, but said, we're the experts on our life. You shouldn't be having this conversation without us. And that was absolutely right. Science is better. Learning is better when multiple perspectives are included. And it should be talking to the people with the lived experience. They know a lot. They have a certain kind of expertise. So all for that. It is always a mistake to ignore mm. these voices. But that's an additive version of, of the case, right? That says you need more diversity. You need more ideas and viewpoints. There's a subtractive version of the case. And that says, I'm qualified, but you're not. Only gay mm. people can be qualified to have a conversation, for example, about homosexuality. Only people of color or women are qualified. Now, that's a different game because there, instead of bringing new information and in, bringing in new viewpoints and then subjecting them to the general rules and saying, look, I have better evidence, now you're shutting down the game and saying, I can participate, you can't, I'm privileged, you're not, and now you have sunk the empirical rule. That makes sense. And I guess you can fall foul of the fallibilist rule as well if you say, I have a personal authority over this and therefore nothing can be shown to prove me wrong. That's right. You can always bring insight and evidence. You cannot bring the authority to disqualify others. Can I look now at, at, at expertise and the, I guess, the crisis in expertise and the attack on the elites, people losing faith in experts? You know, the constitution of knowledge, in a sense, does raise expertise up as the earned holders of knowledge. But where does the constitution of knowledge see the limits of expertise? Well, I don't know that, that the constitution of knowledge sets particular limits on expertise. Now, there's, of course, limits to, to expertise. Um, and the answer to that is always to bring in more viewpoints, always to find more and different perspectives. One of the great things that's happening in science right now, underappreciated, is that developing countries, countries that were you know very small part of the scientific debate, are coming in and coming in in a big way. Universities and labs and graduate students and scholars from all over the world in many languages 
many countries are onboarding at a rapid rate. And that's going to be very good for the reality-based community mm. because it's going to add to the depth and the things that, that the kinds of expertise and knowledge that we have. But Emil, having said all that, there will always be populist discomfort with the constitution of knowledge because most of what knowledge making involves involves a lot of professionalism, a lot of training, whether it's law or journalism or you know, certainly something like medicine or science. Sometimes it takes years just to understand the vocabulary that's used. And people are going to be suspicious of that, and they have a right to be suspicious of it. And that means we in the Constitution of Knowledge have to be transparent, and we have to follow our rules, and we have to be careful, and sometimes we haven't. It is. You said in your book that the Constitution of Knowledge is conservative in a sense. The reality-based community needs to be conservative. It's not open to any random idea from anyone. You, You need to have some standing in order to be taken seriously, and that creates benefits as well, potentially, as some suspicion from people who feel like they're excluded from the reality-making community. Yeah, which happens all the time. You know, people who think they've seen UFOs may have seen something. Yeah. But until they can tell a consistent story and have something that we can get our hands around and check on, it's hard to know what what's going on there. It's just, sure. it's not that people sure. want to shut them out and banish them. It's just, it's hard to acquire those ideas and test them in a meaningful way. And that always creates tensions with the larger society. So, John, in your book, you outline three main attacks on the constitution of knowledge. I'd, I'd like to focus more on the attacks from the left, but just to jump through the first two, um, the first you talk about digital media is weakening the constitution of knowledge. I don't think we can we need to spend too much time here because I think people have a fair idea now of the outrage addiction and the algorithmic problems of social media. But I had one specific question to ask you about this, which is. You know, you point out in the book that the techno-utopians assume that if we just let information run free, better knowledge will emerge. And and naturally, it, it didn't work, as it's the, the, the norms and the, the rules that you spell out in the Constitution of Knowledge that turn all that disagreement into productive knowledge. I'd love you to just talk for a moment about why free speech is not enough. And can social media, you think, tweak the algorithms to be a force for more productive knowledge? Well, two very different questions there. Free speech is necessary. That's for sure. You'll find Mm. no greater advocate of it than me. But no, it's not enough to make knowledge. If you just put a bunch of people in a room and have them um, all spout their points of view, good, bad, and indifferent, uh, what you'll Mm. get is a room full of yelling people. It takes a lot of structure, a lot of discipline to, to push those ideas into forms in which they can be rationally and systematically contested. I mean, think of all mm. the things that, for example, you need to do to write a journal article. You're going to state a hypothesis. You're going to survey the literature. You're going to have footnotes and sites and so forth. Same is true to a lesser extent of journalism. You need all of these rules so that people can grapple with each, each other's ideas in a systematic way. And we forgot that. We just assumed if you throw the stuff out there, it will somehow magically organize itself into rational debates. Mm. Well, that's like what the United States tried before it was the United States when it was the Articles of Confederation for a few years. We had this wonderful Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. We had a very weak government. It was kind of a free-for-all. It immediately collapsed into hyperinflation and trade wars and navigation wars. And very quickly... James Madison and others realized, no, you need, you need systematic rules about how we go about relating to each other. That's the U.S. Constitution. 
Same is true of the constitution of knowledge. Uh, free speech, therefore necessary, not sufficient. Can social media reform itself? I think that was the second point you made. I don't think we know yet. Yes. I know people are trying. I'm not as cynical about, for example, Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter, as most of the world seems to be. Uh, like the newspapers of 120 years ago, when they were caught in a sewer of fake news and hyperpartisanship, they have come to understand that their business model relies on making a product that is not epistemically and socially toxic to their users, meaning it has to be more truthful than not. It can't be telling people not to get vaccinated because the vaccine is full of microchips or don't forget to vote on Wednesday when election day is the Tuesday before. Can't do that. Mm. Can't be full of you know hate and falsehood. That's what the newspaper business understood 120 years ago. Newspapers, mm. journalism succeeded in creating rules and institutions and norms that brought them within the constitution of knowledge. They use prizes, journalism schools, ethics codes, lots of things. We're starting to see the same developments in the digital world just at the beginning, but that's Facebook's oversight board. It's the new International Association of, of um, Trust and, what's the word, trust and something officers. These are the people who try to uh, keep digital media uh, trustworthy. Uh, we're seeing an international association of fact checkers. We're seeing the beginnings of development of attempting to create some rules, some guardrails, some professional norms around digital media. Will it work yet? I don't think we know. But I think we do know from the past that if anything is going to work, it will be this. Can we move to the challenge from the right? And you talk about trolling. And uh, can you spell out how does trolling work? And what is the intention behind it? Why is trolling an effective political strategy? Trolling is a form of cognitive warfare or information warfare or disinformation. This is a very sophisticated tactic of cognitive manipulation. It's very old. It predates social media. You know, the Russians perfected it in the days of the czar and Lenin. And the notion here is in order to dominate an information space, you don't necessarily need to censor it and control it. Instead, what you can do is flood it with so much garbage, so many falsehoods, exaggerations, um, conspiracy theories, and the like, that people lose any sense of orientation toward truth. They no longer know who to trust. They no longer believe they can trust anyone. In fact, they come to doubt whether there even is a difference between truth and falsehood. Vladimir Putin is a master of this. Alas, the greatest master of this of our era is Donald J. Trump. We never thought we would see these tactics, mass disinformation, unleashed in an American political context, um, but we have. This is very hard to deal with. It's a very effective tactic. It's very sophisticated. Its output is not necessarily installing a single alternative version of reality. It's to confuse people about the very existence of reality. So in the case of the greatest disinformation campaign of our time, the Stop the Steal campaign in the US questioning the outcome of the 2020 election, the people who challenge it never bother to try to come up with a single coherent, testable story of how the election was stolen. They don't have one. They don't need one. So how does that help them though? Hundreds, dozens of stories. Mm. The only thing they have in common is somehow the election was stolen. This confuses people, sends the media down all these rabbit holes, absorbing time and attention. And the end result is that 
people are confused about whether the election had any outcome at all. Uh, they think, well, we don't, we'll never really know who won the 2020 election. And of course, that's an open door for a demagogue like Donald Trump or like his MAGA movement to step into that space and say, okay, I won. The election was phony. The whole system is rotten. Uh, turn to me. Dictators and demagogues are the ultimate beneficiaries of the destruction of truth. Nothing new about that. And you, you, you say clearly that this attack on the constitution of knowledge from the right is by far the, the most problematic, but you also point to the challenge from the left, which you group under the label of cancelling. But the left, as you've said, sees knowledge as a product of power. It reminds me of my days studying Foucault at university. And, and, and it's true in many ways that those in power do tend to be the ones creating and controlling knowledge. They tend to own the platforms that disseminate knowledge, um, including the media. And so the progressive left sees social justice as a fight to not just ensure that marginalized voices are heard, but to ensure that ideas they see as problematic are silenced or deplatformed, as that then becomes a victory of the less powerful over those who dominate. What's right and what's wrong with this way of seeing the contest of ideas? I mean, do, do you see any validity in it, uh, in, in that way of seeing the world? Well, again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about lived experience. There's two versions of this, and one I strongly support and the other I strongly oppose. The one I strongly support is that bringing marginalized voices into the conversation is important. Understanding who has power and who doesn't is important. Again, to repeat what I said earlier, um, but this has been so important in my life as, as a homosexual American. We had mm. to force ourselves into the debate. We had a lot to say. and We turned out to be right about a lot of what we were saying. So I'm completely on board with those who say that it's very important that we hear from more marginalized of, of every type. And that includes, yeah. by the way, the dissenter in any given society, the dissident is the most marginalized of all. We have to go out of our way to welcome dissenting points of view, for example, on college campuses, by welcoming conservatives. So if that's what you mean, I'm all for it. There is another view of this critique, however, which says that we should use the raw exertion of power for the so-called marginalized, or people who normally proclaim themselves to be speaking for the marginalized, to control the debate, that is to control mm. speech, what can be said, what cannot be said, to use other authoritarian and regulatory measures to begin laying down rules other than the rules of fallibilism and empiricism and say, all right, we're mm. in charge now. Uh, you're disqualified. We're qualified. Uh, there are things you can say. There are things you cannot say. And that's a very different ballgame. The authoritarianism mm. of that viewpoint is not inherent in the idea of welcoming, engaging, seeking out marginalized voices. The authoritarianism is added on. It says, and in the name of doing that, we, our pressure group, our particular ideology will impose itself on you. That's where they abandon the constitution of knowledge. I mean, the other challenge that the left has had is to bring emotions into the equation and in, in the book, you've acknowledged that words can be emotionally difficult and can hurt. And, and that's why it does challenge us to be civil and to depersonalize, to try to engage with decency and, and empathy. But doesn't that put an unfair burden on certain marginalized groups who then have to suffer whilst bad ideas you know, might re-traumatize them? How do we balance the desire to minimize distress 
with the need to preserve knowledge production. Well, you require people to be civil, to avoid making ad hominem attacks. You don't punish them if they violate those things, as people do on Twitter, of course, routinely. Yeah. You don't punish them with jail, but you marginalize them. You write them off as obnoxious. You tend not to listen to them. So you require those things, but you also realistically recognize that the constitution of knowledge does impose certain burdens on minorities and on dissidents, especially dissidents. Mm. It says, you know, you may be like that scientist who, when everyone said ulcers were caused by stress, said, no, they're caused by bacteria. And everyone laughed Mm. at him and said he was wrong. And it took him 20 years, forced his way into the system. He was right. Same is true of minority viewpoints. So there is a burden on minorities in any majoritarian system, in any society to push their way Mm. in. I would just remind my friends in minority communities like my own. I'm Jewish, gay, and atheist, so I was born canceled three directions, that there is only one system which, as a matter of principle, welcomes diverse viewpoints, seeks out those viewpoints, and tries to take them on board. That's the constitution of knowledge because of its mandate for diversity. Does it do that successfully every day? Does it live up to that ideal every day? Certainly not. Gay people know that. But this was the system that allowed us to, starting with the work of a psychologist named Evelyn Hooker in the 50s, who ran the tests and debunked the idea that we had personality disorders. This was the system that allowed us to make our case and brought us the freedom and knowledge that we have now. And I would also say to my friends in the minority community, yes, there is always a burden on minorities to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, to make these arguments, to put up with some bigotry and crap and ignorance. There's also this great privilege that goes with it, which is the privilege of moral leadership, the privilege of being the teachers in society. People on the margins, on the edges, are the first to see injustice. They're the first to see error in many cases, precisely because we're not absorbed in that group think. And we should treasure our role as moral leaders in society. Sometimes it's a burden, but so often it's a gift. That's really inspiring. That's incredible. Join us next week for Principle of Charity on the Couch, where Lloyd and Jonathan get personal. You know, your book, Denial, My 25 Years Without a Soul, a memoir of your struggle with with your sexuality, as I understand. When have you struggled personally to tell the truth? The obvious answer, so obvious that I, I hesitate to state it, is the one you implied in your question, which is the 25 years that I spent being afraid of who I was that and more next week. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please rate us and leave a review. That is simply the best way to support us and the show. See you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.